here's a bit of a geopolitical riddle. What's a thing that we've all watched on screen numerous times in different contexts, different places, but it's also something we'll never see in real life? And we may never really know whether it exists at all. I don't send you to kill. I send you to be invisible. I send you because you don't exist. You see, we think we know about covert ops because we've all watched James Bond and Jason Bourne. But the realities are quite different. Ukraine has already shown itself capable of striking far beyond the front lines, memorably sinking the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. This is another hammer blow to Moscow's military ambitions here. And in this disordered world, there are lots of these operations happening at the moment. In a democracy, we need to know roughly what capabilities we have. We don't need to know operational detail, of course. We don't need to do anything that would risk the lives of people doing this stuff. But there is a tension between democracy and and secrecy. That's when we create that vacuum that, that James Bond fills, that Zero Dark Thirty fills. And I think it does create this mythologization, which uh, means that we don't understand what's going on. And we as citizens and liberal democracies need to better understand what's going on, because it's going on in our name. I'm Arthur Snell. I was a diplomat in some of the most troubled places on planet Earth. And now I'm here to investigate the threats of today and warn you about the dangers of tomorrow. This is Doomsday Watch. Secrecy is kind of overrated anyway. Anyway, killed by a one-pump automated gun. You can't think of any job that would be more dangerous right now in the intelligence world than that. So let's meet a real spy. Now, something you'll hear is that it isn't nearly as dramatic as the movies. Spying was a sort of gentlemanly game. The covert world was about cover stories and multiple identities. My name's Douglas London. Uh, I served uh, with the CIA's clandestine service for 34 plus years. Uh, Much of that time pretending to be somebody completely different. (laughs) Uh, My day job, which I can only get into so many details, uh, could be working for the U.S. government in some capacity or maybe something entirely different than that. Uh, Some other strange world, be it business or the arts or or what have you, but not official cover. And, And that kind of plays into everything you do, because as a spy, which I consider myself, you use your cover not just to protect yourself from people figuring out what you're up to, but you use it to meet some of the people that you want to turn into agents. So over the years, uh, I had a family that would often accompany me overseas in places that at least were, were less dangerous. There were some places that they couldn't come. And they had to live this cover as well. And that includes your kids who have no idea what you're doing. Uh, to have to explain you know, where mom or dad might be for this parent-teacher conference or volleyball uh, match, they can't say, well, you know, my dad's uh, spying in Karachi or Baghdad today, and he, he couldn't be available. The problem is when they say the wrong thing unwittingly, like they tell somebody that you're trying to cultivate who you invited over to dinner, who talks about how dangerous it is in this town, and oh, I never go out at night, 
and your your little girl pipes up and go, oh, but my daddy goes out at night all the time to do the shopping. He says he wants to, you know, spend time with us. So he waits till we're asleep. And then he takes a backpack and a leather jacket and he goes out the back door. Those are not really things that are conducive to trying to maintain this false bait and switch agenda with somebody you're trying to recruit. That brings a whole new perspective on the concept of taking your kids to work. But what is it that these spies are actually doing? Was Doug popping out of the house to carry out an assassination or blow up Dr. Evil's secret lair? That would be no. Lucy Kirk is another former CIA officer and guides us through some basics. I asked her what were the essential tasks which defined her job. Well, I can't can't go into lots of specifics on that, but you know what I sometimes would say to myself is that in a way I was almost like a journalist. I would try to find people with access to information of interest to the US government. You know, I didn't randomly just meet people and and report as sometimes comes up in the media, but I would find people that were very knowledgeable on information, information of interest, let's just say arms control topics, for example. And then I would debrief them. And uh, that's what I did over the years. And, And I really am a true believer in the value of intelligence in foreign policy. It definitely sounds interesting, but it also sounds as though the world of the CIA and MI6 is pretty close to some other worlds we can easily imagine, like journalism. And rather as some journalists revel in terms like hack or scribbler, Others reject those labels. It seems that the word spy doesn't suit everyone. And then there are those called agents. You know, it's funny that you say that because people say to me, oh, you were a spy. And I say, please do not call me a spy. Spies are like Kim Philby, people that commit treason against their government. Agent is the my asset, the person that I'm debriefing, let's say the Russian or whoever it is, that I am debriefing on a certain topic. So... What's the deal here? I'd like to ask you one more question, Mr. Philby. Do you have any other reason for keeping silent, Philby? I have. The efficiency of our security services can only be impaired if their organization and techniques are discussed in public. Kim Philby, for those that aren't familiar, was arguably the greatest spy ever to have lived. He was a Brit from a privileged background who was recruited by the KGB as a source, an agent, as Lucy would put it. Philby then worked his way up as a staff member in various British institutions, including MI6, where he was viewed as one of their most talented officers. But all the while, he was passing secrets to Russia, spying for them, if you like. And it was the job of intelligence officers like Lucy to find the Philbys on their opponent's side. How did they do it? Tracy Walder joined the CIA straight from college and went on to spend five years as a covert operative for CIA's counterterrorism centre. As she explains, her work wasn't really jumping out of helicopters or driving fast cars. It was all about managing human relationships. Yes, that's definitely a correct description. I think a lot of times... You know, in pop culture, it is 
very much presented as an acrimonious relationship, if you will, um, right? You're, you're trying to get someone to do something for you by threatening them or blackmailing them or, you know, all those kinds of nefarious things. But that's actually not the case. You're trying to gain, get information from someone by, by gaining their trust and friendship and forming a real relationship um, because they're willing to spy for their country, right? And if you want them to be willing to do that, it needs to be in a non-threatening manner. It needs to be in a, in a genuine manner. So yes, you, it's definitely more of a relationship of friendship, commonality, and trust. Friendship, commonality, and trust. This suggests a level of emotional intelligence which seems far from Jason Bourne, but also far from the world of hacking and cybersecurity. As a case officer, you know, what can I do for your family? What can I do to show you some respect? And it works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. But I know it's a heck of a lot more effective in terms of whatever information I get compared to what you're getting when, you know, you're, you're physically abusing uh, a detainee or you're blackmailing someone who you want to collaborate with you freely in stealing secrets from wherever they work or operate. And just to get into the the nuts and bolts of this, setting aside the, the moral uh, revulsion we might feel, what is the problem with it? If, it? if it makes someone work for you and provide you with what you need, what are the downsides? Espionage in, in the terms of agent handling is all about control and not just physical control. It's control over the quality of their intelligence. It's control over the range of their activities because as an agent handler, you don't want your agents taking extreme risk. In fact, you really want your agents just doing what they do normally every day so that their efforts um, to steal secrets are as passive as possible. It's, these are secrets they know because they read these documents themselves. They attend these meetings. When you blackmail somebody, you are undermining that control. Control that you have through the threats you impose. You know, I'm going to show pictures of you fooling around on your spouse. I'm going to you know, show that you've extorted money or, or I'm going to physically harm someone in your family, that control is not genuine. You can't be certain of what lefts and rights you've asked them to consider that they're really going to undertake. And you never know what day they're going to just change their mind and go and rat you out anyway or start being turned against you. And again, it's not just the ethics of it. It's really the practical outcome. And it's a much more successful, constructive and productive means to guide a clandestine relationship. Okay, so we've talked about intelligence, about spying, running agents, gathering information. But there's another aspect we haven't really discussed. Covert operations. Here's Rory Cormack again. A covert operation or a covert action in American parlance is distinct from your run-of-the-mill intelligence gathering operation because it seeks to change something. It's active. Now that might be through spreading information operations to change people's mind. It might be through covert political action to secretly, discreetly funnel money to certain political parties. It might be covert paramilitary action where you're covertly funneling money to rebel groups or doing sabotage, fighting secret wars, all the way up to the most controversial end of the scale when we start talking about assassination. There are some more definitions we need to figure out here. 
Here's Doug again. Not to give a lesson in semantics, but covert means deniable. It's not clandestine. Clandestine is secret. You know, lots of U.S. intelligence agencies, military agencies, they do secret stuff. But what the agency is authorized to do is conduct activities that we could say, wasn't us, wasn't America, it's deniable. There's nothing new about all this. After all, spying is often termed the world's second oldest profession. States have been doing this for as long as states have existed. And as a historian, I, I delighted in reading documents relating to Queen Elizabeth I way back in the 16th century. And she's talking about covertly raising a, a proxy force or sponsoring a proxy force who were fighting against King Philip of Spain in the Low Countries on the continent. And this involved sending money, it involved sending some mercenaries, all done entirely covertly. And there was a wonderful line one of her advisors used, saying, we do this by covert means. Um, and so you can see what is quite, feels, feels quite modern, has actually been going on for literally hundreds of years. Now, the more famous examples, of course, come from the Cold War and particularly the CIA, largely because the CIA was doing a fair amount of this stuff, but also um, to give credit to the Americans, they have declassified many of their documents around this. So historians like me can have a good nosy around in the archives. And um, some of the more famous examples would come from the so-called golden age of covert action in the 1950s, when in 1948, for example, the CIA covertly interfered in the Italian elections, one of the first major successes, perceived successes of the Cold War era, keeping the communists out. And then a few years later in 1953, the CIA alongside MI6 um, helped to sponsor regime change in Iran after the Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh nationalized Iranian oil back in 1951-53. Another very famous example of a covert coup. And it was perceived to be successful, um, so successful that the CIA then tried something very similar in Guatemala the following year in 1954. The golden age is where some of the, the legacy, the fame or infamy of the CIA is built. On trial for treason, Mohammed Mossadegh, pajama-clad ex-premier of Iran, ousted in a revolt August 19. First films from Tehran show the army court-martial trying the 73-year-old Mossadegh. Charges include defying the Shah, trying to overthrow the monarchy, and illegally dissolving the lower house of parliament. As the trial continues, word is received that sympathy rioting by communists and nationalist extremists was quelled by security police. As Rory says, some of these covert operations in the early part of the Cold War have become notorious. Here's Middle East expert Professor Simon Mabin from our earlier episode on the Saudi-Iran rivalry. And you see in the early 1950s, nationalist sentiment comes to the fore with the election of a democratic prime minister, Mohammed Mossadegh. He wanted to nationalize all these oil companies and make sure that it was Iran that was getting the benefits and not London. 
Now, Washington and London didn't like this, and so they plotted together to overthrow the first democratically elected leader in the Muslim world. And what this does is generates a great deal of hostility against the UK and against the US, ultimately reaching a crescendo with the revolution and the hostage crisis that followed. That revolution and hostage crisis that Simon is discussing happened in 1979. The coup against Mossadegh had been a quarter of a century earlier, in 53. And even to this day, the perceived negative role of the CIA and MI6 are frequently cited by Iranian politicians to justify their oppressive policies. So do intelligence agencies learn from this notoriety, this hubris? I asked Lucy Kirk. Well, for me, the answer to that is that I know the history of this. People always say to me, oh, the things you've done, the things you've done. And I say, you are teaching a history class here. This was the 1950s and 60s and the early 70s. When the church committee ran a whole program in the early 70s, they ended a lot of this kind of activity forever. And I used to, I remember people used to say to me, well, why doesn't somebody kill the head of Libya and, uh, you know, and, and, and I said, because it's against the law. And, and somebody would sneer at me back. I said, we do obey the law. We follow the law. And there were a set of rules and regulations that went out on assassination, which seems awfully remote to me at this point in time. But this is history, I say. This is now history. And yes, it is the history of the agency. Remember in 1947 and 48, we had just come out of World War II. The world was much more dangerous. The nuclear weapons had started. Russia had them. You know, it was a scary time. And I think yeah. things were done uh, that nowadays are not done. But I suppose in some respects that history refuses to go away. I'm thinking now of yeah. Iran, where... You know, there's the idea of the great Satan and, and, and I think Britain becomes the little Satan, which is nice for us because, you know, we like to be in the story. Um, and uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the, the famous coup of, of the 1950s against the, the democratically elected prime minister Mossadegh uh, and reckoning with that uh, to this day, the Iranian regime uses that as a kind of as a hammer to beat, beat the US and the UK with. Well, that's what I mean. And you're right, history, it's not going away. The Mossadegh, I think, I still think this is history. And I'm sorry, but I think what Iran has got today, and I witnessed it in 1979, I, I lost somebody that, that I knew quite well when that happened overnight. Look kindly on, and I don't blame them for no. using history. They can say anything they want, they will anyway. But uh, if it were that way today, they probably wouldn't be in power. But times have really changed, and I do not think we are generally going into countries and trying to overthrow a government. Otherwise, we would have been, you would have noticed us much more actively in Iran than we have been in the past several decades. On the 11th of September 2001, Al-Qaeda attacked New York and Washington, D.C. In doing so, they changed the world of spying and covert ops forever. We've talked about those events two decades ago many times before on this podcast. But the seismic shock of 9-11 impacted every aspect of global affairs 
and left the U.S. feeling vulnerable, wounded, and ready to strike back. The world of intelligence absolutely entered the new era. You know, obviously pre-9-11, we were very used to, I guess, what we would consider to be static targets, targets that we know of, that we understand, and that fit into one sort of geographic space, if you will. But then obviously, once September 11th happened, the threats weren't really about people. They were about ideas. Um, So the intelligence communities had to obviously completely reshape themselves and adjust to a transnational threat rather than a singular geographical threat. Tracy was at her CIA desk the day the Twin Towers fell, and it wasn't long before she was helping colleagues track down Osama bin Laden to what they thought was his Afghan hideout in the caves of Tora Bora. This would have been in the very early days of the war. So we're talking like December 2001, right? This is like three months after September 11th. Obviously, it's very difficult uh, to get (laughs) into those caves. So the only way um, that we could kind of flush them out was through airstrikes. But obviously, when you conduct an airstrike, people that survive clearly run away. Uh, that's just human nature. Uh, so we knew that we needed President Bush to also allow ground troops to, I guess, kind of gather up the people that were running away to perhaps include bin Laden. Um, and so he refused. He believed it was just too dangerous for them um, and that the casualties sustained would be too high. But he did order the airstrikes. So basically what happened was they bombed the mountains. Um, Bin Laden ran away. So that's that's what happened there. And it was obviously frustrating um, because we knew that, that he was there, but we knew we needed ground troops. A few months later, as you heard in episode five, 2,000 miles away in Yemen, a targeted drone strike was carried out by the CIA, killing Abu Ali al-Harithi, an al-Qaeda fixer. The gloves were off, and the supposed taboo was thrown out of the window as the US scrambled to respond decisively to the terror threat. Here's law professor Sarah Kreps from that earlier episode talking through the ethical hurdles that led to this decision. All right, so this is a way to address, I guess, this problem of counterterrorism in a manner that does not now require kind of the investment, a heavy investment of U.S. uh, material and resources, nor does it require, they think, the domestic authorization because it's seen as this imminent target that is covered under a 2001 authorization for the use of military force that says that the president can target al-Qaeda and its associates. It was in this period that the CIA seemed to be less focused on those human relationships that we discussed earlier and became more associated with things like targeted killings, detentions and even torture. Here's Doug London, former CIA officer and author of the book The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Well, my career sits um, on balance 17 years or so on either side of 9-11. And the agency uh, in the period of 9-11 and with uh, credibility issues likewise sustained over Iraq and um, reporting that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, which validated the White House's determination to invade that country and, and topple Saddam Hussein. I believe that the agency went through a transformation 
to stave off what it believed was an existential crisis that might come from its implication in having failed, if you would, for 9-11 and failed again over Iraq. So the CIA went down a path of prioritizing covert action as a means of addressing what was then the nation's number one priority and would be for the ensuing almost 20 years, which was counterterrorism. The starting guns of this historic battle fired their first volleys in the pre-dawn of what was a critical day here. You know, morality and ethics is a gray area in intelligence, isn't it? And we look at uh, precedents such as just war and the law of armed conflict that's been, you know, created as statutes by virtue of international treaties. But uh, I believe certainly in the case of the enhanced interrogation program to which you speak, where there was the use of torture, waterboarding, and, and other methods, that really is inconsistent, if you would accept me at face value to some extent, in terms of the ethos. And as, as a case officer, as someone whose business was the business of human relationships, uh, which is the core of espionage, which is the core of collecting foreign intelligence, I, I do believe that the agency for that time lost its way. For us, is that this war on terrorism has unleashed a polarization of the world, which, if it takes place outside a framework of rules, really does risk setting one part of the world against another, causing humanity huge distress and hardship. Something you might have heard me mention on this podcast is this idea that everything is connected. The CIA's decisions in the 50s contributed to Iranian nationalism and its 1979 revolution. That revolution created the aggressive nationalist Islamic Republic of Iran, which is the front line of one of the most active covert wars happening today. I'm talking about the Israeli Secret Service Mossad and its war with the Iranian nuclear program. My name is Jake Wallace-Simons. I'm the editor of the Jewish Chronicle in London and a writer for the Spectator magazine. Um, and I'm on this podcast because I've broken a number of uh, Mossad exclusive stories over the years, most prominently the one disclosing the background to the assassination of the Iranian nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh in November 2020. We've already said that the reality isn't like the movies. And this is also the case with Mossad's assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Because if you put this in a film, people would say it was implausible. So this was a, a very elaborate operation. In fact, one of the sources who gave me the story described it as elegant because it was a very complicated solution that had a very incisive and clear and, and clean outcome. So the uh, Iranian nuclear scientist, he was killed by a one, uh, an automated gun, uh, a remote-controlled gun that weighed one tonne which was smuggled into the country piece by piece over a period of, of many months. Uh, and you're talking about, you alluded to the size of the, of the team, you're talking about more than 20 uh, people, uh, both Israeli nationals and Iranians working together after eight months of, of surveillance. And obviously that surveillance included, you know, very, very detailed observation of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh's habits, the source who gave me the story described it as they could even smell his aftershave. They knew which aftershave he had by smell. You know, 
he was traveling um, on the 27th of November two years ago with his wife and 12 bodyguards in Absad, which is near Tehran. Um, so it's an entourage. He was sitting next to his wife and uh, a burst of 13 bullets uh, were fired from this um, automatic weapon that was, or, or rather remote controlled weapon that was mounted on the, on the back of a Nissan pickup truck at a particular point in the journey. Uh, the 13 bullets hit him without hitting his wife who was sitting next to him just a couple of feet away or any members of his security team. And then the the weapon, which was uh, activated by somebody who had visual contact with, with the entourage, um, self-destructed. This level of sophistication has long been a part of Mossad's armory, creating a mythology that strikes fear into the mind of its foes. I think the word that's normally associated with, with, with Mossad operations is audacious. Um, you know, the agency has, has been remarkable in carrying out particularly eye-catching operations over the years, stretching back to its inception, really. Um, I mean, ones that spring to mind are um, killing a, um, a Palestinian bomber in Gaza by placing an explosive device in his mobile phone and then giving him a call. And when he answered, it blew his head off. Uh, operations with with, with poison. Um, and of course, there was that moment when uh, a few years ago when uh, a, a Mossad team dressed up as uh, as, as tennis players in a, in a hotel in the Gulf. Um, so I think that it's it's fair to say that that these are, you don't need to do that many of these operations to develop a mythology around the service. And that certainly happened in the case of Mossad, particularly in in much of the Arab world. They they, they have almost a supernatural status. There's this sort of exaggerated fear of Mossad. They're blamed for everything from stealing people's shoes to training sharks to, to, to swim and, and be violent in the Red Sea. Um, and, uh, and, and that, I, I suppose, in a way, is, is perhaps helpful to the agency. Yeah. And it's easy to understand, you know, Israel's unique geopolitical status, why they would have such a, a sort of advanced capability in this area. But is there something in the kind of legal and uh, structural framework that makes Mossad different from, for example, the French intelligence service or, or MI6 or the CIA? Well, I suppose Mossad is, is, is more similar to the CIA than it is to MI6, for example, because MI6 is ostensibly a civilian intelligence service, whereas mm. the CIA and Mossad are have a military component. Their employees are often armed and carry out military-style operations, special special forces-style operations, yeah. which M- MI6 um, doesn't tend to do. Um, and then I think that you know Mossad has ten- has evolved its own particular modus operandi because it's set its back to the wall all the time. You know, I mean, I suppose the way that Mossad works is closer to how, in spirit how an agency like SOE was was to behave yeah, the, the forerunner of MI6 yeah. during the Second World War mounting very high risk and audacious operations because the stakes were so high. There's always a sense of being two minutes to midnight in the region. What happens next depends on if there are any dead Americans. The impetus for the assassination of General Soleimani was the death of an American contractor on December. Donald Trump may regard this as an irresistible opportunity to hit hard at the Iranians once more. We'll have to wait and see. Iran's rivalry with Saudi Arabia has driven instability across the Middle East for decades. 
Now the Saudis are getting ever closer to Israel. So what is Israel's strategic goal driving these extraordinary operations? Sure. I mean, I think the the overall context for this is the discrepancy between the urgency with which Israel views the Iranian nuclear program and the urgency with which the Western world views the Iranian nuclear program, particularly the United States. And of course, I'm talking about the Obama deal um, and now um, the, the, the Biden administration's attempts to reheat a similar deal. Uh, from the Israeli point of view, it, it means a lot more because it would be Israeli children that are vaporized, not American ones, at least at least to begin with. Um, and so the Israeli position on the Iranian nuclear program has always been much more urgent, much more, much more hawkish as well. Um, and I suppose that's where the Mossad has come in because as the negotiations have been taking place, uh, there's a sense of, of drift towards normalization and towards the weaponization, the nuclear weaponization of Iran. And as Israel cannot uh, abide that by any, by any, in any circumstances for obvious reasons, Mossad has come increasingly into play to place obstacles in the path of the Iranians as they try to make their way towards the bomb, while the West appears appears to have been uh, allowing that to take place, with the exception, of, of course, of the, of the Trump years. We have to note at this point that there have been several Israeli security chiefs who thought Trump made a terrible error pulling out of the JCPOA and who supported Obama's approach. This includes former Mossad director Tamir Pardo, as well as several former generals. And Mossad's techniques seem to have been aped by the Saudi service, which had its own tiger teams of assassins roaming the world, targeting dissidents, including Jamal Khashoggi. So has Mossad spawned imitators? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't find Mossad kidnapping a journalist and chopping him up in an embassy. The, the, the difference between the Saudis targeting their own people and the Mossad targeting enemies is, is not to be dismissed. I mean, that's, that's a pretty fundamental difference. And the democratic and legal scrutiny that Israel gives its operations, that's not uh, a subjective point. That's, a, that's an objective fact. It does that. Now, of course, there are people who say that Israel standards aren't high enough and that, you know, they, they they carry out operations that are too brutal and that's fine. But it is a it is a fact that they scrutinise every operation very carefully and pull out of many. Um, uh, and so I think in that way, I mean, the, the, the Saudis just don't do that. And then finally, is there a world in which Mossad doesn't need to exist or certainly doesn't need to exist in the way it does at the moment? Uh, and I suppose what I think is, uh, you know, is Mossad a symptom of a particular moment in Israeli history or is it a sort of fundamental element of how Israel works? It's a good question. I mean, I, I think on a more temporal basis, you're right, the Abraham Accords have changed the face of the Middle East and have changed the geopolitical security balance um, in very far-reaching ways. I mean, for example, Britain is, is now far more able to openly support Israel um, in terms of trade, in terms of the negotiations with Iran over the nuclear deal, which Britain has been very strong on, even a harder line than, than the Americans, mm. um, and all sorts of other ways. And Britain can only do that because the Gulf states are no longer demanding that Britain sides with the wider Arab consensus, as it was. So, you know, the implications are, are very far-reaching. The potential for more countries to join the peace alliance is not entirely out of the question, although the Iranians are fighting back in, in, in many different ways. But I think that ultimately what it comes down to is the question, which is 
will there ever be a time that people don't hate Jews? And I think that that is very, very powerful in the Israeli psyche. And there's this phrase that the Israelis use in the military establishment, which is that they always uh, are committed to being able to defend themselves by themselves. Framed in that existential way, it's hard to see a world when Israel decides to stop its audacious and aggressive operations. For what it's worth, it's not clear to me that the Abraham Accords, the Trump-era peace deal between the UAE and Israel, has had the transformative effect on the region that Jake suggests. There aren't a whole load of Arab countries about to join up. That might be because these covert actions, as we know from the CIA experience with Mossadegh, can have a long tail. I asked Tracy Walder what she made of some of her foreign counterparts. Israel's Israel, right? And <laughs> um, they are always going to do what they do best, which is typically assassinations, right? I, it sounds awful to say, but I think that that's the case. You just pointed that out. Um, that is what they do. That's what they've always done. That's what they're known for. They've done it with the PLO. They've done it with Hamas. And now, obviously, they're doing it in Iran. On one hand, I have to respect it in that you are minimizing civilian damage, right, by these like very pointed and calculated assassinations, um, right? You know, you're not bombing a huge civilian marketplace or something like that. But then obviously, on the other hand, it really increases the um, tumultuous rhetoric, right, that already exists um, between the two countries. So then it makes it really difficult for, say, the US or UK or whomever is going to be brokering negotiations to step in. Of course, this can't just be a story about assassinations in the Middle East. During the Cold War, American officers were locked in a precarious struggle with Russia's intelligence services. And as America re-enters a great power game, it's China that increasingly poses a threat. And this threat is as much economic, based around the stealing of intellectual property, as it is military. Tracy worked on Chinese counterintelligence. You know, now, obviously, there's a lot of talk, right, about the economic espionage damage that China has done to, you know, the states and Western Europe and other countries as well. You know, the case that I was working in particular was um, an economic espionage case, which that tends to be mostly their MO. I don't want to pigeonhole them completely into that, but that is an MO that they have. And so, you know, the case I worked, um, it was an individual, Tai and Chi Mac. Um, and they both came to the United States. They had lived here for over 20 years uh, before they were caught. They became naturalized citizens um, and they came to work at Mac was was working at a company called Power Paragon. And really, the Navy started realizing, hey, Power Paragon, this stuff that you're developing for us, all of a sudden the Chinese have it. <laughs> Where did you know, how did that happen? <laughs> And so um, Power Paragon basically needed to obviously conduct their own investigation um, and figure that out. And they narrowed it down to a few people. And this case was kind of a joint effort between FBI, CIA, and then also the Navy or, you know, Department of Defense as well. Um, and he he was, was ultimately caught. He was stealing technology that our Navy needed um, to be successful. And he was giving it to China. In an open society and a globalised economy, this stuff is very hard to manage. We can't, and definitely shouldn't, filter out and profile all job applicants from China. But you can be very sure that Westerners are not working in businesses developing sensitive technology for the Chinese military. 
You're right. It would be incredibly difficult for someone of, I guess, you know, Western European descent, if you will, um, to go to China and work in their like defense <laughs> um, contracting systems. And I think that that is a huge fundamental problem. I hate to sound, you know, like this beacon of of, of fear, but I mean, I, I think that that is their MO. And to the point that we were just talking about, it's incredibly hard to track that without being a racial profiler, right, which is illegal. And so I think it's incredibly hard. Uh, we know, uh, gosh, I think it's something like $900 million a year of economic damage. Um, that Chinese espionage does the U.S. And I, I believe it was Director Chris Ray of the FBI that said Chinese um, espionage and domestic terrorism are two of the largest threats that at least we see here in the United States currently. So now we need to talk about Russia. Here in Britain, Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee noted that we have allowed Russian interference in our business, media and politics, often with the encouragement of senior politicians. And we have also never asked our intelligence and security services to investigate the most troubling instances. It's not simply that MI5 doesn't know whether the Russians interfered in the Brexit campaign. They've never even been asked to find out. These active measures, as the Russians like to call them, political interference, media manipulations and sometimes assassinations, are all part of the core business of Russian intelligence. After her long career with the Cold War CIA, Lucy Kirk turned her hand to writing. Perhaps it's not entirely surprising her novel is called The Poison Factory. The plot hinges on a murder in London that is reminiscent of the 2006 killing of Alexander Litvinenko, using an incredibly toxic radioactive substance, polonium-210. Litvinenko was a former KGB officer who essentially moved to the West, to England, with Berezovsky. And in that sense betrayed, and certainly in Putin's eyes, betrayed his, his Russian former Soviet connection. And little by little, I think Putin became more and more angry as Litvinenko played roles in Berezovsky's world, and then suddenly he was dead. And he died a horrible death. Uh, when it's been looked at now that so many details are out, it looks much more sloppy than you would expect anything Russian to be. I mean, there were little segments of the poisons at the sinks where he, they, the two men stayed in the hotels and that sort of thing. But they did succeed, as they the Russians do many times, on to today where Russians are falling out the window, you know, not plural, but one recently fell out a window on the fifth story of his apartment building, one, another fell down some stairs, youngish men that died. So, you know, Putin, and I did not use his name in the book, actually in part at the advice of a former Ministry of Foreign Affairs friend of mine, Russian, who said, yeah, no, I'd say don't use that name. <laughs> so I said <laughs> Kremlin. And uh, as we know, things have just gotten worse and worse and worse. And they're all individual, selected, highly focused um, assassinations, but they're all yeah. on people that Putin would say have betrayed Russia. To this day, the impact of the polonium attack on Litvinenko hasn't been fully understood. His assassin, a Russian thug called Lugovoy, spread a radioactive trail across London as he went about his business. 
There are doctors in London who believe it has created a wave of child cancer cases. But why do such a complicated, risky operation? Why not just shoot him or confect a tragic road accident? We've spoken to chemical weapons expert Dan Cajetta before on this podcast. The more and more I think about it, it's because you could do interesting things with chemicals that you cannot necessarily do with a knife or a, or a gun or a bomb. And that you can send more of a directed message. That's not always the case, but you know we have things like the Litvinenko poisoning in 2006, where the polonium was pretty clearly a fingerprint pointed right back to Moscow. And I think you know if poor Mr. Litvinenko had just walked down the street and been run over by a white van, which could happen, it happens every year in London, people get run over by white vans. Uh, it would have been viewed as you know sad, but maybe possibly just dumb bad luck. Yeah. So there are times in which the method is the message. Yes. And I guess that was then also the case with the attempted murder of Skripal in Salisbury. Oh, and indeed, indeed. You know, and the more and more I think about that, and I've had four years now to think about the Skripal situation, and people seem to think like that was a failed attack. I'm not sure it was a failed attack. Is this really meant just to get rid of Sergei Skripal? I don't know. Is it meant to send a warning uh, against defectors? Quite possibly. Is it to put a sort of general reign of terror amongst the uh, the Russian emigration, some of whom are actually quite anti-Putin? Uh, the to them uh, to be provided on the subject of Sergei Paul. So to be explicit, the Russian government denies any involvement or knowledge of the two men accused of that, that attack on British soil. Reversing the formulation, I will say that it is highly unlikely. unlikely. Whatever the answer to Dan's question, one thing is for sure. Britain's spineless response to the Litvinenko killing, where the then Home Secretary Theresa May refused to carry out a public inquiry, that sent a clear message to the Russians. They could carry on. In 2017, investigative reporters working for BuzzFeed identified 14 murders that had taken place on British soil from 2006 onwards that they attributed to the Russian state. It's worth noting that Russia's oligarch friends in the West are very good at getting things taken off the internet that they don't like, using Britain's famously ferocious libel lawyers, but the BuzzFeed article is still online. Maybe the Kremlin is happy for us to know just how ruthless it can be. Well, I think the Russians go on a much darker path than we do. And yeah. uh, I, I feel very confident in saying that. I mean, I used to hear the whole thing, if, if this is what you mean. You know, they used to talk a lot about sex and about the use of females to win over American Marines in Moscow and so on. That is not what we do. Well, we can see it right now with Ukraine. They'll do almost anything. I mean, I almost hate to say that, but they will do almost anything to get their knowledge, to gain the information. And I would not suggest uh, doing anything that made them angry, such as what I'm talking about right now. I mean, they are very reactive to anybody who betrays their interests. With that in mind, though, one of the interesting things about the intelligence prior to the invasion does seem to be that whatever the Russians may or may not have believed, uh, the US and the UK, it seems, had a very good handle on what was happening. Does that mean that the CIA have an agent inside the Putin's inner circle? 
That's a tricky one. Just because I can't think of any job that would be more dangerous right now in the intelligence world than that. I still think that the technology is a part of that. I hope we have what you said, but it would be a very dangerous job because that's the first thing Putin's going to be, they're going to be looking for. Any little tiny wiggles in a human being that would suggest they were reporting to the Americans. I just think it's questionable that we have somebody really close to Putin. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing we can be sure is of that we, we won't find out in any any time soon. And if we um, do find out, it's going to be not a good story. Is this all a game? It's often a word we use when we talk about spying and covert ops. It's not much of a game for the targets of assassinations, but there's a sense that a lot of this stuff, although exciting and intriguing, is a bit marginal. So what about Ukraine? Can covert ops make a real difference there? There's clearly a lot of potential for covert operations here. And in that brief period between the Russian invasion back in February and the time before it became clear that actually Kiev wasn't going to fall, there was a lot of talk coming out of uh, Washington about the scope for covert action behind enemy lines. And there was a lot of people um, almost chomping at the bits who have a, a replay of Charlie Wilson's war and the, and the Afghanistan operation in the 1980s, where they were almost thinking, how can we, how can we do a sequel? How can we support Ukrainian partisans behind, uh, behind enemy lines in, in occupied Ukraine? Now, fortunately, those, um, that, that wasn't necessary because um, Ukrainians obviously uh, fought back and the dynamics now are very different to how many people assumed they would be. But there's still a lot of scope for, for operations. Um, the question is why and to what end would states be doing this? Um, because you are never going to cause a state to withdraw from territory through covert operations alone. And that's been a consistent misperception, a mistake that many leaders who see this stuff as a silver bullet have made over, over the decades I, I think it's important to look more strategically, you know, at the idea of regime change, for example. Doug London cautions on the limits of covert operations. Just because you can assassinate someone, does it actually get you where you want to be? How has regime change uh, worked for any particular government? Has it worked for the Russians? Has it really worked for the United States? Uh, yet it continues to be one of the primary means of covert action. Um, in terms of assassinations and and sabotage operations, again, I think you need to look strategically over the course of time at, you know, the, the multitude of these operations to see, did they serve a strategic interest? And it has to be a strategic analysis, not tactical, because the war on terrorism was all about tactical successes. Uh, the United States refined an absolutely elaborate and highly effective means to, to hunt to find their man and take them out. And I will tell you truthfully, and I'm not speaking of the military, with 
almost minimal civilian collateral. You know, the people they went after, they got. But was the idea of going after those people a great strategy? Did it really degrade the threat of terrorism or did it perhaps help to metastasize and decentralize so that instead of, you know, this core Al-Qaeda, we've got Al-Qaeda affiliates, we've got the Islamic State, we've got Islamic State affiliates. Are we safer? Are we are we not? That's that's my measure in, in looking at covert action. Ultimately, it's hard to make a realistic assessment of these things because so much is, well, secret. Here's Dan. Most of what's secret is it things that are what I would say sort of active, proactive stuff. Most of what's secret is stuff that's largely passive, okay? For example, all the stuff that goes into protecting presidents and prime ministers and stuff like that, like just exactly how thick the walls of the White House are or, you know, what kind of bullet does it take to get through the window of the president's limo, okay? These things are secret for a reason, and I think people understand that. Uh... Most of what's secret in the intelligence world, sort of 99.9% of it, I would venture, even a higher percentage than that, is basically passive. It's collection of information. It's watching what is happening in the world. The vast majority of the secret world is boring and mundane. I'll give you a slightly off-the-record example here. It's only slightly, because it goes back it goes it goes back 30-something years. There used to be a guy, or more than one guy probably, and it probably still exists, I don't know, who would sit on a deck chair or a lawn chair or something watching the Bosporus outside of Istanbul and writing down every ship that went by and going to a public telephone and phoning it into somebody. And within about six hours, a list of those ships would end up in the in a cable and to the Pentagon. So we would know when Russian ships were, or anybody's ships were going either way in the Bosporus. Okay? Now... These days, it's probably a covert CCTV camera, or it might even be not even that. It's probably looking at the traffic camera on the bridge. But that's the sort of thing that you sort of expect intelligence services to do. Now, do you want to go and ruin that guy's life by outing that guy? I don't know. What's the ethics of that? But like when we spoke about drones in our Doomsday Weapons episode, don't forget what was once the preserve of one or two powerful countries might now be commercially available. When the Saudi assassination team targeted Jamal Khashoggi, one of the tools available to them was a phone hacking platform called Pegasus, sold by a private Israeli company to whichever government wanted to buy it. Mossad expert Jake Wallace talks us through this world. There are many different private agencies or private companies uh, staffed by former spies that, that carries out covert operations to order. Uh, in, in the democracies, those are more about surveillance, about data gathering, and so forth. And overseas, it sort of veers into mercenary activity um, and stuff that's, that's less reputable. So it spans, you know, legitimate on the one end to illegitimate on the other. It's a multi-billion dollar worldwide industry operating sort of half in the shadows and half out of the shadows. The private-public partnership that provides the weaponry and the technology for uh, for security services, uh, state security services, uh, does bleed into these uh, other sort of private enterprises as well. Um, you know, there was a scandal recently about Israeli spyware being used by p- other people to hack uh, influential figures. 
And I know that that does form an increasingly large part of intelligence operations, particularly with regard to people's mobile phones. I mean, the one Mossad agent described it to me as it's like having a straw that you dip in someone's mobile phone and you, you, to, to drink from it. The word, you know, the Hebrew word lishtot, to drink. So sipping from somebody's data from somebody's phone from, 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 from behind, you know. And obviously it's a matter of national security for Israel, Britain, the United States and other democracies to maintain their qualitative edge in terms of the technology and skills they're able to retain and prevent spilling into the private sector. Uh, and that's a, a, just another battle that these intelligence agencies face uh, month by month. These operations are not going away. It is a mistake to think that in the world of unsecrecy, the world of open source investigative journalists, the world of Bellingcat and all this kind of thing, that states are no longer willing or able to use covert operations to meddle. It is more difficult to operate secretly, but it can clearly still be done as the Israeli campaign against the Iranian nuclear program is demonstrating because often secrecy is kind of overrated anyway. The key factor here is is acknowledgement. So I think we're going to see um, higher tempo, use of technology, more confusion being spread. I think that's going to be an, another trend. Because of the fragmented media landscape, it's now so much more difficult than ever before to make your narrative gain traction, to win people over. You know, you, you can't just buy a newspaper. Aim is to reduce trust in the official Western narrative. And I think that's the future. That world, where we don't know what to trust and who to believe, is a feature of our social media age. Perhaps it doesn't really matter if some people believe that the CIA is listening to their innermost thoughts or believe that Mossad controls sharks in the Red Sea. But misinformation has a cost, and never more than in the era of pandemics. When the miracle of modern science gave us a vaccine for COVID, millions, particularly in America, didn't trust it, preferring to believe in conspiracy theories about Bill Gates and Big Pharma. So, can we manage pandemics in a disinformation age? That's the subject of our coming episode, The Next Pandemic. Science advances, uh, our understanding of what a pandemic is changes over time. But human nature in the face of such a threat does not really. We are altering natural ecosystems and interacting much more closely. And that's where that danger zone lies. We're having a slow creep of gain of resistance. 
If you want to hear the next episode right now, subscribe to Patreon. For early access, bonus content and much more besides, search Patreon Doomsday Watch before it's too late. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archbold. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.